Well, good morning once again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to the passage we just heard read, Daniel chapter 10. After what might be the most enigmatic four verses in the Old Testament, we will begin what is likely the most difficult three-chapter section of the Old Testament. We are on the home stretch of the book of Daniel. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are actually one large discourse. In chapter 10 through 11.1, which is an, an unfortunate chapter break there, uh, are the intro to the entire thing. And so what do you do when you have to preach an intro to something as a complete sermon? I'm going to preach it a little bit differently, but I want to help situate us a little bit better before we move forward. Upon initially reading this or hearing it read, you might ask, legitimately ask the question, you know, well, what's the vision that's being discussed here? Like, where is the is the terrifying man that Daniel sees? Is that it, or is there? Where, where is the content? What exactly are we supposed to understand? Are we supposed to look at this terrifying man and figure out what part of him symbolizes what? I mean, what what is going on here? Is Daniel telling us that he had a vision of the latter days, but we don't get the content of it? Uh, but if you look at the introduction to verse 1, uh, the introduction, excuse me, which is verse 1, you'll see that it's really an introduction to the, in, the rest of the book, this whole section. And it's set off in third person here. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was about a great conflict. That's an awkward ESV rendering. It was about a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. He said that there is this word that it was true. Like what, what word, though? Where's the word? <laughs> we don't get the word. That's because the word is not in chapter 10. Look down with me at chapter 11, verse 2. We're going to go through a whole chapter and then we're going to read this, and we're, we're tempted to say finally before the now here. And finally, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and then he's off to the races. What truth? Well, it's the truth that he just talked about in verse 1. It's the truth that he said he was going to, that he said he, the, the, the word was true, it was of a great conflict. And it probably doesn't take looking more for more than 15 seconds at chapter 11 to see that there is a lot of conflict that is about to happen. And so the word that is going to be interpreted, that is going to be given, is the content of chapters 11 and 12. With chapter 10 through 11.1, as it's broken up in our scripture, being the intro to the entire section, which causes us to ask questions like, why is there an entire chapter as an introduction? Uh, why are these particular elements in the introduction? And, and those are some of the things that I would like to try to get at together today, to, to see what the realities that are present here can teach us about God, ourselves, and the world. And I want to do that in four points. We'll do that in four points together this morning. The first point is nothing new, and that is the faithfulness and relentlessness of Daniel. You'll recall from the last chapter that in light of the fall of Babylon, Daniel is praying about the restoration of his people to the land in light of Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years. Hey, the end is here, and he's praying, and in response to that, there is an angel who comes, 
and tells him about that there's actually a 70-week program that have been declared for the people and that the end of Jeremiah's 70 years will result in the people going back to the land, but it will not result in the bringing to coming to pass of ultimate hope and ultimate restoration and ultimate salvation. That belongs to a larger program. And we mentioned that as it turned out, the initial part of that, them returning to the land, was fulfilled under the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC. And, and to refresh your memory and perhaps even shine a little bit more light on last time, listen to how Ezra describes how it all went down. He says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. It's a fascinating passage. And recall that Isaiah calls Cyrus God's anointed to do this particular task. But I want to call your attention to something odd. You notice that the Ezra passage I just read started with this prepositional phrase. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he gave this decree. But the passage that we're reading today says something that you would perhaps otherwise might, you might just gloss over. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Sorry, I got some on. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, begging us to ask the question, why is Daniel still in Babylon? The decree to go back has already been given. What's he doing there? What he prayed for has happened. The decree to go back to Jerusalem has already been given in the first year of Cyrus. Here we are in the third year of Cyrus, and he's still there. Why? Speculation abounds. Perhaps it's because the initial wave of folks were going to do an incredible amount of hard labor and rebuilding, and, and Daniel, now a, an old man, wasn't fit to do it. Daniel had had a white-collar career in kingdom administration, not in hard labor, and they already had capable administrators over there. You know, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and go, go look at this, and Ezra, Nehemiah. Maybe it was just the trek back that would have been too difficult, again, for a man who was older and frail. Maybe it had something to do with his duties there in Persia, now that he's being again kept on and retained under the new regime. In fulfillment, by the way, or making good on chapter, the very last part of chapter 1, beginning of Daniel, it says that Daniel was there from Nebuchadnezzar all the way through Cyrus. Here's, here we are. So whatever we think about precisely why Daniel is not back in the land, after the decree to go back that he prayed for has already been given, here's what we know for sure if we've been following closely. 
Nothing that Daniel could offer his people by physically being in Jerusalem would be as great as his ministry of prayer from conquered Babylon. Nothing that Daniel could offer his people by being physically present in Jerusalem would be as great as his ministry of prayer back in conquered Babylon. Because regardless of what we make of why he didn't return, we know Daniel at this point. If he thought that it would best serve his people for him to be in Jerusalem, he would be there. The man would find a way to be there. No doubt. And just because some of his people were back in the land and the rebuilding had begun, it didn't mean that Daniel's pleading was done. In those days, verse 2, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks up until the 24th day where he has this vision. This is the so-called Daniel fast some of you have heard of, right? It's not a fast from food. It's a fast from fine food. Nice foods. He's committed to eating crummy food. No delicacies, no meat or wine, kind of a sustenance, bare minimum subsistence, I should say, diet. Why was he mourning and lamenting so much? We might speculate, but the answer suggested by the larger section seems to be that he was inquiring about the future of his people in light of the fact that when they had returned to the land, the promises of Jeremiah not all of them were fulfilled. Final redemption wasn't ushered in. You pair that with the opposition that the people were facing in the rebuild effort, and you start to get a sense of Daniel's posture here in prayer. His people being in the land was not enough. And here's where we have to pause and simply admire the relentlessness of Daniel. What do I mean by that? Well, because if it were me... I've already prayed about the future of my people. Daniel chapter 9. I already was mourning. I was already fasting. And then as a result of my prayer, a word went out from God and an angel came to me and told me what the future held for my people. If it were me, at least, I would tend to think, well, you know, even if this is a hard word or even if this is... Now, I don't understand, area. this is the word of the Lord. I will rest content with this. This is the future. I've asked the question. It's been answered. But not Daniel. It's not what he does. But here he's saying, I, I know you've told me about the future of my people, but I want to know more about the future of my people. And that is going to, again, be the content of 11 and 12. He is not content in one sense. He has this holy discontentment. He's already gotten an answer from the Lord. A word from the Lord in answer to his prayer. And he's back at it again. He's back at it again. Asking, so what's going to happen to my people? And again, it is Daniel's words of prayer that are heard by God. Look at verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. 
The first day here in the context, it refers to the first day of his three-week mourning, which is going to align exactly with how long this angel was delayed. I'm going to see that in a second. Okay? It, it really is almost too much to take in, and, and it sounds like an oversimplification, but the, but the reality is the reason God's people have the prophecies of Daniel 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 is because they were responses to Daniel's prayers. They were responses to Daniel's prayers, which means that Jews, and by extension us in light of Christ, have the prayer life of an old man in captivity to thank for some of the most breathtaking, encouraging, and hope-giving revelation in the Bible. We have an old man in captivity to thank for the for this. These visions, this word, they were responses. I came because of your prayer, and here's the response. And so I'm, thank, I'm thankful for this man's prayer life. And I don't want to compare mine to it, honestly. So let me ask you, do you think that your hands-on ministry efforts are more real or can be used more powerfully by God because you feel like you're really getting in there and getting it done? Hmm? Something a little bit more tangible feels like a little bit more fulfilling service. That's what God can use more. Do you think that God can use that more than your ministry of prayer in this church and in your family? Does please pray sound to you like when you say, what can we do to help someone who's just please pray? Does that to you kind of tacitly make you feel like, oh, there's nothing we can really do? Because if it does, you haven't been listening. You hadn't been listening. Chances are you are not a good Bible teacher or a preacher. That's the, that's the reality. Chances are you are not a top-notch apologist. That's okay. But guess what you can be? You can be a beast in prayer. You can, it takes dedication. It takes discipline. But it doesn't take giftedness. doesn't take being smart. Okay? Doesn't be doesn't take being in a particular circumstance, doesn't take be, having gone to seminary, doesn't take being a theological whiz kid. You can harness the same power that resulted in these words from the Lord. Again, James says prayer that powerful is powerful and effective. And so how much do how much do we believe that? And do our prayer lives reflect that? Or are we quicker to sign up for X, Y, or Z or put, do, do hands-on things? Which is great. I'm not knocking that. Great. But do we tend to think that that's where the real, the real ministry happens when I show up to brick and mortar or I am physically present somewhere getting my hands dirty, so to speak? Is that what we think? Or do we understand the ministry of prayer, the relentless ministry of prayer asking God over and over and an answer do you have the audacity like Daniel to ask again for more and so out of that an encouragement pray now pray now in such a way that when you are old 
and you're not able to show up. And you're not able to get it done and do all the rest of the things. Pray now so that when you are old, God can use you just as mightily and perhaps even more so than you have ever been used. That's the encouragement. Don't grow old and say, oh, my time in ministering to others is behind me. So long as you can pray, that's not true. It's not true. The faithfulness and relentlessness of Daniel, number one. Second, the awesomeness and glory of God. As he is mourning, as he's fasting, he stands by the Tigris River and he has this terrifying vision, terrifying vision. I lifted up my eyes and looked, verse 5, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold and he, around his waist. His body was like barrel. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And what happens when someone like that shows up? What happens? That experience in a word? Terror. That's what happens. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. These guys didn't see anything, okay? But they heard the words, presumably. And they're out of there, leaving Daniel alone. Leaving him alone, that's what it says. So I was left alone, verse 8, and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. A picture of Daniel beholding this and being just completely undone. Completely undone. Who is this figure? Who is this figure? As you can imagine, there is energetic speculation about the nature of this figure. One camp of folks says, no, this is, this is clearly a theophany. This is an appearance of the Lord. They cite the incredible similarities between the Ezekiel passage that we had read and even John's description of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. One camp, this, between Ezekiel, between later what we've seen, this is a picture of the Lord. Is it the person, some people will get more specific. You know, it's a, it's a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. We've already seen the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7. This is not just Yahweh, this is the second person of the Trinity. We don't, we don't get clarity on that uh, until the New Testament, but that's, that's what it is. That's one view. The largest objection to this being the appearance of the Lord is that he says he was resisted by the prince of Persia. A regional angel, regional opposer of God's people, 
and needed, it seems, Michael's help to get to Daniel. I have to confess, along with a couple other, many other commentators, that it is odd to think that the omnipotence and the ancient of days we've been reading about and what we see here could be held up by a little G God. It's a bit odd. So what do you do with that? Others say because of that, no, this is a picture of an angel. It's not, it's not, an, it's not a theophany. It's not an appearance of God. It's an appearance of an angel. They cite Daniel chapter 8 and how terrified Daniel is when Gabriel shows up. He falls to the ground. What exactly is going on here? The position that I came to as I worked through the text I worked through the text by myself without any like looking at any commentaries or anything. And the one that I took initially was the one that I ended up with after reading and sifting through all of it. And that is this. The vision is of the Lord. And then in verse 10, there is an angelic messenger that is going to give the interpretation of things and give the content of the vision like we've already seen in the book of Daniel. Okay? Why? A few reasons. First, as far as the vision being an appearance of the Lord... Uh, the reaction of Daniel, but maybe even more importantly, those who were in the vicinity of Daniel, the reaction is unprecedented. In fact, it reminds us a lot of a reaction very similar in Acts chapter 9 with a guy named Saul. And the Lord appeared to Saul, but no one else saw him, but they just heard the voice. This, this, this kind of description, the unprecedented reaction in one sense of Daniel, but even more so, we don't see anything like this regarding anyone else in the book of Daniel. Seems to suggest something more than angels. Second, the description extremely closely matches the present, the glory of God from Ezekiel and even in John's vision. And then third, the, the linen and the fine and the jewel imagery fits better with a priest king than an angel. So I mean I think the vision is clearly one of the Lord. But why think that verse 10 presents us with a kind of a heavenly interpreter? Again, first of all, I think it's quite odd to think that Yahweh could be stalled out by a regional sub-deity. I think that's an odd conclusion to draw. Um, second, he, he, the, the angel here is described as one being in the likeness of man or the children of man twice, where the person in the vision is just said to be a vision of a man. Okay? Subtle difference, but it's a difference that you see twice, and it's a clear difference. And then finally, recall in chapter 8, uh, this, this, we've already seen this relationship before of a vision, and then an angel shows up and explains things and gives content. In chapter 8 we read, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Okay, so he came near where I stood, and when he came... He, I was frightened and I fell on my face. This is Gabriel that he's falling on his face before. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. So the objection that how Daniel keeps falling asleep and falling over and, and passing out, that can't be an angel. Well, we've already seen it be an angel. So I don't think I think I don't I just don't think that's a strong objection, and that's one of the ones in the literature. So, in summary, I do think is an appearance of the Lord, and then verse ten and following has an angelic interpreter that is going to give the content, just like we've already seen multiple times in Daniel, where something happens and then we see an angelic interpreter. Why did I make a big deal about that? 
Why did I make a big deal with that? Because if I'm correct, what we get here is a picture of the awesomeness of God. The awesomeness of God. The same awesomeness, the bizarrely described awesomeness of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. Where you're sitting there listening to it going, what on earth is Ben Scott reading? What is this picture? Something that's got so many wheels and colors and fire and metal and throw. I don't even know. I can't even put it together. Exactly. Exactly. You can't put it together. You cannot fully grasp it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. We're reminded in light of that the incredible mistake of coming before God flippantly. John MacArthur was telling about a man who, who was talking with him and said that God appeared to him frequently, spoke with him. And as an example, he, was, he said, yeah, I mean, he appeared to me you know, while I was shaving, was talking. And John said, um, did you stop shaving? And his point, and this guy's, the guy's answer was no. In the context. His point was that it is foolishness to believe that the presence of God or even a heavenly being is just a is a is a visit from a jolly companion, like the like the second ghost in the Christmas carol. Scripture paints the opposite picture. Even in the most godly of men, it produces a different response. Terror. And I don't mean fear of the Lord. I don't mean like fear of the Lord. No, no, I mean literal terror. Like passing out. Like just being undone. Can't even process it. Can't even stand. Can't even hear the words anymore. I mean, it's hard to imagine how there could be a... We're going to see this later. A stronger description of just how undone he is. In the words of one theologian, listen to this. No one chit-chats with El Shaddai. Even one of the Lord's angelic servants, even when one of the Lord's angelic servants brings the revelation, that experience is not just the neatest thing, but devastating anguish. So why do I mention this? It's not because I think anyone in here is claiming divine visitations. That's not it. Just so you know, I have a much higher view of you all but it is because uh, all, uh, in the midst of all of our prayers for help and all of our challenges and the manner in which we frequently talk about God and the fact that we spend most of our conceptual time in the New Testament, high and mighty can sometimes get swallowed up by the gentle and lowly. It's not one or the other, it's both. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, if you don't understand the, the highness and the mightiness of God here, you will not understand how breathtakingly unbelievable it is for a man who claimed to be God to say he was gentle and lowly. This? How? Jesus. The incarnation. If, if this right here and picture like Ezekiel 1 are not in the background of your understanding of gentle and lowly, 
you will have a distorted picture of God and an illegitimate sense of comfort, perhaps for every longing of your heart. Certainly, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but but he didn't become not God. The emptying of himself, Philippians 2, was not stepping down from divinity. You say, how could a God like this be also gentle and lowly? Because he took on the form of a man and he's God and somehow it happened. I'm not sure. But one can't swallow up the other just because we tend to like one more than the other. Or one feels a little softer than the other. One comports with the way we want to do things a little bit better. We have to hold in both intention the high and mighty God. This, let all mortal flesh keep silent before Him. And Christ has come. And He says, are, are you burdened? Come, come to me. Are you weary? Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly. But if you don't have this in the background, that statement becomes not nearly as amazing. This is the God that we come before when we worship corporately. We're reminded of it powerfully by what we see here in Daniel. And we dare not forget it in our lives and in our worship together. The awesomeness of God. Third, the reality of heavenly war. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, that is, says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. It's a good word. Texts like this should help us do neither, should help us avoid both poles. As a result of Daniel's prayer, this heavenly messenger, we'll just say an angel, comes to Daniel and it appears that he came right when Daniel started praying, but he was delayed. He was delayed because we learn in verse 13 that he was held up by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Let's listen to this. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, if you go back up, remember it said from the first in verse 12, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, and then we read that the amount of time that in those days, Daniel, I was mourning for three weeks. What the, the picture that seems to emerge when you put that together is, you were heard on the first day, I went out to come to you, but I was resisted for that entire period until now. 21 days. Three weeks, 21 days, same amount of time. I was resisted by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The reference to a prince here is not an earthly ruler. It's not an earthly ruler, but a special kind of powerful, territorial, heavenly being and or angel, a demon, we might even say, of Persia, who was influencing the kings of Persia against the people, perhaps even in the rebuild effort. One commentator calls him the supernatural spiritual power standing behind the national gods, which we may properly call the guardian spirit of this kingdom. And everyone, it's okay. Everyone in their heart, let me just give you permission to say, this just sounds bizarre. Sounds like something out of Hollywood. It's okay. 
You can admit that in the quiet of your heart or, or even out loud like me. Because that's what it feels like to us. It is so far removed, this unseen realm, from our regular experience of reality. That's how it feels. After, he's, after saying that he was delayed and continuing on, he goes back and says that in verse 20 that he's got to get back at it. Look at verse 20. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. He is going back to do heavenly territorial battle. And then he alludes to what we will see in the next section, that Persia, you know, Persia is the regional power at the time, but as we have seen already, right behind Persia comes Greece. So the idea is, I'm going to go out, do battle, but guess what? It's not going to end. New territorial spirit coming up. The prince of Greece, and then he includes two details, two details. He says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There's another way of just saying this is what's true. He's not talking about an actual book. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael. Except Michael, your prince. Michael, the Chief Prince, Michael the Archangel, who shows back up in Jude, contending with the devil, and in Revelation chapter 12, waging heavenly war. This is a bad dude. He's described the same way in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Again, I know it sounds odd, but what's very clear is that the Archangel Michael was the territorial, um, we might even say categorical prince of the people of God. We're not told precisely how certain beings came to be associated with particular territories. Some see a description of this in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Was when the Most High gave to the nation, gave the, to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. The same sons of God, you might think, who abandoned their rightful place in Genesis chapter six and went into the daughters of men, resulting in the Nephilim. Some people think, Here's, here it is. We don't, know, we don't know exactly the mechanics of it, but here's what, what this is suggesting is that the Most High divided these things up. It's territory, these sons of God, not a reference to Israelites, a reference to like a divine council or, or a certain kind of angel. Uh, such suggestions, I think, fall very far short of instilling a ton of confidence. And again, we can still just admit that this seems extremely bizarre and even fanciful. And yet, here, here's the, here it is. It's pictured here because this is important for us to be aware of. That's why it's here. It's not just interesting. It's not just a cool peek behind the scenes. This isn't an Old Testament phenomenon either, by the way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth. There are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth. And he says again that those, later in Corinthians that those who sacrifice to idols sacrifice to demons. So this isn't just something in the Old Testament that you can kind of push back there. It's just something that is a reality 
for us, for Paul, for the people of God. Four brief points in the service of taking this very seriously, but not being sensational about it. One is just understanding that the unseen realm is real. This is not a metaphor. It is the, the battles being waged are just as real as Pearl Harbor are just as real as any battle that's ever been fought on soil or in the air. Just as real, just not seen. That's hard for us to grasp if we're honest. Just we have a hard time feeling like it's real. We can't see it. We can't see all of the effects of it. But it is. It's not a metaphor. Two, this war, what's going on, is staggeringly influential. Staggeringly influential. Listen to the words of one theologian. We have no trouble believing that incompetence and bungling are endemic to governments and political machinery, but we don't as easily think of suave and sinister spirits of evil lurking in the corridors of our congresses or shaping the policies of our parliaments. Veldkamp talks about a number of what he calls satanic assistants who are far more cunning than even the most clever human diplomats. And each is assigned an evil influence on the people of a country through lies, propaganda, and other means with the overall goal of stirring up hatred of the church of the Lord. How specific does it get? What counts as a country exactly? I don't know. I don't have the answers. I don't know about, what about America? Do they have, how many territories? I have no idea. What I know is that what goes on in the unseen realm is staggeringly influential. Staggeringly influential, and we should not undercut its importance. Which leads to number three, that we should pray for protection, but from a position of strength, not weakness. Not weakness in the sense that we're about to, oh, we're, we're floundering, we're about to die. No, we should pray for protection, but from a position of strength. We're, we're those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and stand on the promises of God. That's why Paul can say, put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's this. That's this. There's a war going on. There's a war going on that has real effects, that has staggering influence. And so we have to pray for protection and wisdom that we would wield the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, that we would, that we would put on the full armor of God because this is a war where, where there are casualties, just like any war. Sometimes these casualties are eternal. And so we must pray for protection, but from a position of strength. And finally, the encouragement, the back and forth doesn't last forever. Because the lamb wins. It's not just some kind of karmic back and forth, back and forth. He's, I'm going to go out and then the spirit of grace is going to come and then all the rest of it. But one day, the lamb wins. And we even see in Revelation chapter 12, this incredible scene, equally fantastic. A war arose in heaven where Michael and his angels contending with the devil and they fought back against him and cast down the accuser. 
This war only wins one way, and it ends in favor of the people of God because the Lamb is conquered. That's point number three, the reality of heavenly war. Then finally, the fragility and neediness of man. It probably did not escape your notice how devastating encountering the unseen realm is for a man. Okay, Whether it's appearance of the Lord, the messengers, this passage is over the top describing how undone Daniel is. Just listen to this in rapid succession. No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength, verse 8. And as I heard, I fell on my face in deep sleep, verse 9. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, verse 10. When he had spoken, I stood up trembling, verse 11. When he had spoken, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute, verse 15. By reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength, verse 16. Now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me, verse 17. One touched me and strengthened me, verse 18. As he spoke, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me, verse 19. The larger testimony of Scripture clarifies is this isn't just because Daniel's old or he's running a caloric deficit or something like that. It's that because although one day we will be glorious, even the mighty, the mightiest of us and the most godly of us are but wisps of flesh and jars of clay sustained by a great God. Even though one day we will be glorious, even the mighty of us and the most godly are these tiny little wisps of flesh in jars of clay. The only reason that we stay around is because we are sustained by a great God. I and mean, look at this. You and I, have you been listening to this? You and I have zero chance of winning this kind of war. For, forget winning. We don't have a chance of starting it. With all the unconscious falling out. I mean, we have no chance of winning a war like that. We are so impotent. And when you look into, sorry, when you take that account uh, into account, the larger story that is unfolding around Daniel and Israel, the rise and fall of nations that are variously influenced by territorial spirits, you suddenly realize that both in the background of our corporeal world, physical world, but certainly in light of this background, that we are impotent. You read about all this stuff going on, we are. This struck me freshly just this week. I don't know why. It might not strike you the same way. We are a people who quite when these. Okay, you hear the plans of Yahweh. You see the picture of Yah high and my. We are people who quite literally often have our plans frustrated because it rains. Yahweh's plans. It rained. Our plans got ruined. That right there is a great little illustration, metaphor, whatever for how we are. In this swirling mess of a world, rise and falls of kingdoms and nations, we are fragile, we're needy. And so the question is this, do you feel, it's that word, feel, experience your dependence on God or do you just know about it? in light of our relative fragility and impotence, and even despite all our planning, do we feel in our bones our desperate need for God to work in us, to will and to act according to His good purpose? Or do we just try to get it done with grit and willpower, kind of like a Christian Marine or something? 
Does our felt sense of felt sense of security, not theological statement, your felt sense of security come from your planning that can be so easily frustrated or in God's promises? Do we feel that we can act nice in our own strength and that be sufficient without needing God to be loving and kind with holy discernment? Two different things. Doesn't take the Holy Spirit to be nice. You know, a bunch of unbelievers who are really nice folks, guaranteed. Do we depend on the Spirit? We acknowledge our dependence on the Spirit. To do these things. We are fragile needy people compared to what's going on around us. The only question is whether our successes and our strengths will cause us to inhabit a delusion where we think we could spar an angel or something if it came to it. Or whether we will see a picture of this greatness and say, I need you every hour. I need you every hour. And one day, because what, have God, what God has promised, you and I as I love to remind you, will be actually great. So much so that Paul, Paul says that we will judge, judge angels. We'll judge angels. That's how great you and I will be, but not yet. Not yet. And so let's press into not only a doctrine of dependence on God in light of our fragility, but the, but the reality of pressing into it personally every day. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you to fight for us. We thank you for mobilizing a, a spiritual air force on our behalf. We thank you for the armor you provided the church. We thank you for examples of faithfulness and prayer, relentlessness even in prayer. We thank you for these words of hope. And even though we fully, can't fully comprehend it or frankly come close, we thank you for these images of your glory that cause us to stand in awe and wonder and say, what exactly is going on here? Pray that it would lead us to worship and not to figure out a puzzle. That we would be captured by your glory. In Jesus' name.